I mean, difficult, challenging. We went out in canoes and the hunters were shooting, you know, around us and we would be looking out for birds that were um, uh, injured and, you know, drop into the water and go and rescue them. And I remember, you know, us taking one duck um, onto the onto the boat and, you know, I had blood coming out of its beak and, you know, it was just like a very, very sad experience. Hello and welcome to Vegan FDA's Activist Podcast, a podcast designed to give you insights, tactics and strategies for becoming a better advocate for animal rights and animal liberation. Through this show, you will meet incredible activists working across the many different fields of advocacy, allowing you to find your form of activism for the animals. I'm your host, Gareth Skur. And I'm Jackie Norman. You are listening to episode 43, Animals Need a Good Lawyer, with Ondine Sherman of Voiceless. Ondine takes us on her journey from grassroots activism across Australia to implementing the teaching of animal law in universities and humane education in schools. Along the way, Ondine provides many powerful insights into how we can all become advocates and help our message reach a new generation. To get the most out of this episode, check out the video version over on our YouTube. If you enjoyed the podcast and the series, please leave some stars on your favourite podcast platform's ratings bar. Now, on with with the the podcast. podcast! As regular viewers of the show will know, we always like to start off these interviews by taking the time to learn about our guests and their journey to a more compassionate lifestyle and vegan philosophy. I understand that at seven years old, your grandmother served up your first taste, as it were, of making the connection between meat and the animals that it comes from. We'd love to have you share the story and also how a chance encounter with uh, an animal liberation table in New South Wales inspired you to dedicate your whole life to helping animals. Yeah, I I love sharing this story. Um, it takes me back to sitting around the dinner table with my grandmother. She lived with us and did most of the cooking in our house. And I was seven years old. And uh, her cultural heritage uh, was Lithuanian. And tongue is a traditional Lithuanian or Eastern European dish. So I remember quite viscerally, you know, digging into this piece of brown stuff <laughs> and asking what it what it was. And when I heard it was tongue, it took me a moment to connect the dots. And I asked, but do you mean like like our like our tongue, a person's tongue? And she said, yes, like an animal's tongue. And uh and that was the last time I ever ate meat. <laughs> I don't think I actually ate that piece of tongue, but um, I, I announced uh, that evening that, um, you know, I love animals. Everything came into focus in terms of the meat I had been eating, the chicken and, you know, um, meat pies at school and sausage rolls and all these things were all animals. And I was shocked and and outraged that we were eating animals because I love animals. I think a lot of kids go through this process. Uh, It wasn't something unique to me, but um, my family was supportive. Nobody else was vegetarian in the family or uh, vegan. I mean, veganism wasn't even known really at that time in the, when was that? Uh, 19... 
81, I think. Uh, yeah, 1981. Um, so I made an announcement that I didn't want to eat meat anymore. And, and my grandmother would cook me, you know, special meals every night. And I imagine they thought it was just the stage I'd grow out of, but, uh, but I didn't. And then when uh, several years later, I was walking with my dad uh, and we passed by, um, at that time, um, animal groups would put up, you know, tables with brochures and leaflets and petitions on clipboards to sign. And I walked past, past one of these tables of animal liberation in New South Wales and, you know, got exposed to the whole horror behind factory farming and industrialized animal agriculture. And I signed up um, to their magazine, you know, became a member and I started getting their magazines, you know, I, I think it was once a month, maybe. From that moment onwards, I knew that I wanted to dedicate my life to helping animals. And I remember um, lying on my bedroom floor with my dog, Bronnie, and I was, you know, had the magazine open in front of me and there was just like a really traumatic kind of uh, spread of visuals from, a, from an abattoir. Um, of uh, people killing pigs or it was a kind of a cruelty expose of what they were doing before the slaughter. And I said to Bronnie, you know, that I, that I, uh, I'm going to be dedicated to saving her kind. <laughs> and uh, I wrote like a letter to animal liberation that they then published a couple editions later saying that, you know, I'm 11, I think I was 11 or so at the time, I'm 11 and I can't believe what people do to animals and I'm going to make a difference, try and make a difference when I'm older. So, um, yeah, it was, I was one of those kids, <laughs> one of the crazy animal loving kids. <laughs> My cat might appear in a minute in the frame. Oh. It's fine. We love cats. There's no yeah. problem. It's wonderful that you made that connection. And, and we were, something we were just talking about. Um, I think it was this morning. It might have been this morning. We were saying, you know, how people compartmentalize and, and out of sight, out of mind kind of thing with the whole meat thing. You know, they don't associate with not only what but who their meat is when they eat it. But, but things like tongue or other kinds of animal organs that are you know um considered awful yeah you know you can't get away from what that is whether it's and i think there are so many people that don't eat things like mm. heart liver and all these these awful parts of animals which also get consumed but there's no hiding what they are and that we have them as well just as as much as uh, the animals do so mm. yeah you, you can't package that up nicely any other way and pretend it's something that it's not yeah yeah well, it breaks through that cognitive kind of barrier or the compartmentalization that we do um, for food animals, you know, pets, wild animals, pests, you know, we compartmentalize very effectively. And sometimes when something breaks through, it's, you know, it can shock us yeah. and cause us to think when, when you've got mincemeat or whatever, to be honest, it could be anything in there. Um, you're, not, you're not entirely sure. Whereas, yeah, tongue, it, it, it's, it's a tongue. And, yeah. um it's quite funny meeting so many people and they're saying oh well you know we we honor the animal by eating every part but so many of them that i know they won't eat awful i think it's because th th there's that awful uh, connection there so um yeah it it's so wonderful to hear your story and making that connection so young and like having been introduced to animal rights and then becoming an activist uh which we love at a young age 
I would love to hear a little bit about what activism looked like in pre-internet Australia when you first uh, kicked off. Yeah, wow. It's hard to even imagine, you know, life before the internet, <laughs> let alone mobile <laughs> phones <laughs> or social media. But yeah, there was no no internet um, and things happened, you know, in print or in person. So activism looked like, um, you know, subscribing to a newsletter such as the Animal Liberation one, but there were there are others, I'm sure. And then there were sections in the newsletter which talked about protests that were happening. You know, this date, meet at the bus stop here, you know, um, and then a landline you could call. Uh, so uh, so that's that's what we did. And I went to, yeah, quite a number of protests back in the back in the 80s. Um, my friend and I went out, we actually s skipped school, don't do this kids, but we skipped school and, uh, and went off to the, um, protests against duck hunting out in West Wyalong, which was, well, at that time felt like forever away from where we lived, uh, in Western New South Wales. And we spent, um, a few days out there. That was Laurie Levy, who's still going strong and doing amazing work, um, against duck hunting. And uh, yeah, that was a that was an amazing experience. I mean, difficult, challenging. We went out in canoes, and the hunters were shooting, you know, around us, and we would be looking out for birds that were um, uh, injured, and you know, drop into the water and go and rescue them. And I remember, you know, us taking one duck um, onto the onto the boat, and you know, I had blood coming out of its beak and you know it was just like a very very sad experience um never sure if I should say this part of the story but there was one duck hunter who was because I was I think we were 17 at the time or 16 maybe there was a very cute duck hunter <laughs> who started talking to us <laughs> and it I think it's like an important component because it humanizes the other side because you go into it and you're like they're the enemy and we're the saviors. And that experience also helped me to, to you know, understand. I mean, it, it sounds a bit silly to say, but understand that these are people on the other side with their own worldviews and their own experiences. And, you know, they're not, uh, they're not evil necessarily. They just have a different perception of the world and our place in it. So, um, or perhaps they're just, you know, doing, following their cultural tradition and their fathers and their grandfathers, you know, traditions of what they like to do. So, um, yeah, so the, uh, did the duck hunting protest. Um, fur, there was a fur protest in the city, I remember, through the CBD. Um, my friend and I went to the opera house to opening night at one of the fancy opera um, you know, opera performances and everybody was there in their, you know, beautiful clothes. And um, we we pre-made little stickers saying fur is murder and we were sneaking around and putting them on the backs of women wearing fur coats. <laughs> yeah, that was, I was a teenager. <laughs> I love that. That's great. That's great. But, um, but no, it was, uh, it was very active and, um, and there was a lot of, ta you know, tabling and, you know, um, uh, leafleting and things like that. 
Yeah, very hands-on. I guess you yeah. had to be, didn't you, then? You, there was no other yeah. way. And that was incredibly brave. I mean, duck hunting is a big part of the, the culture here in New Zealand as well. I think we have six weeks of it or something starting very soon um, in in May of every year. And uh, it's a heartbreaking time. And it's a, I would not want to be out there with all those hunters trying to go in there and, and rescue the ducks. That was incredibly brave what you did. And, um, yeah, very, very valuable as well. So. You've made a great point as well about, you know, the human of they're not necessarily the enemy um because the i know many hunters um myself you know who you know their kids get dragged along to it and they don't necessarily enjoy it but it's because what dad and granddad do they go and they go shoot ducks you know um and the kid gets dragged along and that's what is conditioned into them that this is okay to do you know and there's many who don't like it who still you know they go along because that's what their family does but um once they actually start seeing what happens, especially with that hunting, there's so many that are shot, which are never retrieved. And so they are just purely killed for the sake of killing. And it, it's such a sad thing. And I hope that um, there's plenty more protests. I'd love to see uh, the vegan mags, actually, to be honest, take a bit more of that, that old school approach and getting some more of these protest words out there. Eh? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. In partnership with your father, Brian, together you founded the nonprofit organization Voices in 2004, one of Australia's leading influential and cutting edge animal protections groups. Voices represents animals in a court of law and incorporates school learning with a large focus on youth and education, debating, and my favorite, critical thinking. The organization and its teachings play an invaluable role in shaping our future politicians, CEOs, and creatives like us, to name a few. What was it that spurred the creation of Voiceless and honed your focus on that legislative change for the animals? Yeah, uh, going back, so this is 2002, um, I I was working in the uh, environmental protection uh, movement because there weren't really jobs in the animal protection movement at that time. Um, also, I'm passionate about environmental protection as its own, own cause, of course, um, but I remembered my pledge to my dog, Bronnie, and I was always looking for opportunities to do something for animals. Um, My dad had just uh, sold his uh, financial management companies and uh, was a little bit at a crossroads. So I, in a stroke of genius, if I might say so myself, I managed to convince him to come to Los Angeles with me to a five-day animal rights conference. He was always an animal lover, and he actually went vegetarian about five years after I did. Um, but he didn't, he wasn't involved. He didn't really know, you know, about the issues um, in detail. And so we off we went to, um, to this. It was five full intensive days in a hotel near the airport in L.A. And it happened that it was just like a, a amazing, remarkable conference. There was, you know, all the leaders of the animal rights movement were there. Um, Peter Singer, um, Karen Davis from the United Poultry Concerns. Um, Carol Adams, I think, was there. We saw an early um, edit of the film Earthlings um, and just heard, you know, like a got a comprehensive analysis and assessment of the animal rights movement, uh, both in the US and and internationally. And at the end of that, you know, he was, I mean, he was very traumatized and he said, look, we got to do something. And I was like, 
great. So <laughs> we decided to start our own organization. Um, and he came from this kind of business corporate world and had, you know, very different ways of, of thinking and doing things versus me, who'd always been really in the nonprofit world. Um, and uh, and so we, we started Voiceless with a vision to be very mainstream, very inclusive and embracive, because animal groups at the time were seen as very uh, extremist and radical and weren't taken seriously. There was really no media coverage of animal issues at all. Um, it just had a very negative reputation. So we wanted to bring in, you know, um, people who were in all different kinds of areas and industries um, to show that this concern is a concern that all Australians share and all Australians have and should have. Um, so we uh, so we started with this a broad grants program to support the animal movement to grow and flourish um, and strengthen other activists and other you know advocates. And uh, our focus was, you know, quite strategically on factory farming because we felt, or one of the things we really learned at that conference is, you know, the extent and you know the shocking numbers of farmed animals who you know are suffering. So we felt that, you know, gives us, can help more animals, you know, gives us the biggest bang, bang for our buck, you know, is the most strategic approach. Um, so law and education um, were, my father was always passionate about the law side and I was always passionate about the education side, although I, I think law is extremely important area to be working in. Um, but from the beginning, we invested um, time into both those areas um, and we hired the first ever animal lawyer in Australia. And uh, and our approach was to just to always try to capacity build and, and promote the growth. So it's not just us out there campaigning and saying things, but we're just like bring, constantly bringing in more and more people to grow and strengthen um, the movement, including the animal law movement, which just didn't exist there yet, but had gotten to, off to a good start in the US. So we were following that model. And uh, yeah, we saw some really good progress in those areas. And especially you look today at the, you know, the animal movement and it's just, you know, so much bigger and stronger and, and more mainstream than it was. So I think I mean, not that we're taking all the credit for that, but um, but I think that approach was a sound approach looking back um, because you need you need an, an army. <laughs> if this is like a war against animals, um, we need the resistance army to go in and 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 create peace for animals. So we just need more people um, who are educated, you know, in the issues, who are have the tools, have the expertise to be, you know to be fighting and, uh, and disrupting, um, the current systems. Mm, that's fantastic. Yeah. And it's, it's a great example of how us coming together in, in a couple of ways is, is so fantastic. You know, having that, that, um, conference, you know, in the first place got that mm. always ticking, but then having you and your father, there's different sides of the coin, really, I suppose in the, the mindset come together, making something unique and, really formidable team yeah <laughs> and it really just uh one thing that is very crucial for us at vegan fda vegan fda here is about collaboration and that's at the core of all of what we do 
And it's it's having those folks who have the different talents to you and coming together and using it as a as a combined force. And yeah, we we need to build the army, and we especially need strategists like yourself, you know, mm-hmm. who can help to direct that into the correct places. And it's um, we absolutely love what you're doing with it. But before Voiceless, the only uh, groups in Australia which were engaging with school students about animals were organizations such as Dairy, Egg, and Pork Corporations, which are, of course, pro-industry. Not to mention the sponsors of many schools in low uh, socioeconomic uh, meal programs. Voiceless have been able to get another perspective in front of students and let them do their own research, which is fantastic. I'd love to know... How challenging was it to get voiceless off the ground in a country like Australia, where much like New Zealand, uh, people are deeply conditioned to view animals as nothing more than essentially a food source or commodities? Yeah, it is. Uh, it is a very challenging uh country as as i'm sure new zealand is and uh we this slowly dawned on us over the years um as we compared australia with other places and now you know we've for the last few years we've had this um uh, animal cruelty index that we have on our website which ranks countries according to um you know animal law and policy and um animal consumption and sorry, that's my cat <laughs> <laughs> wanting to have a say. Um, and Australia is the worst. Australia and the US are the worst countries for animals in in terms of the top biggest, 50 biggest animal production countries globally. So it's no surprise really that it's a challenging space to work in and, um, you know, meat and dairy and animal products form the backbone of the Australian economy. So as soon as you are criticizing or, you know, inspiring critical thinking in that area, there's an immediate pushback. Um, also farmers, you know, the, the idea of farming is extremely romanticized in Australia, mm-hmm. even though in many areas such as, you know, the um, pork production, um, pig farming isn't a romantic farming <laughs> experience. It's controlled by, you know, often multinationals and foreign interests and, you know, massive companies. But still, the the image of uh, of farming and and so on is um, is very precious to Australians. So we we realize we have to tr- uh, tread very carefully. We started off at the beginning, actually, with um, in terms of education with. Uh, an animal club model that we were promoting in primary schools. And um, it was all about just kindness and learning about animals and so on. But we already felt the kind of kickback very early on. Um, A couple of teachers got into trouble with their principals because parents had complained that we had some kind of message. It actually ended up on the front cover of some local newspapers and we had legal letters going both back and forth. And we actually um, got an apology out of uh, one of the politicians in the local area who had made a statement about voiceless that wasn't true and so on. But it was... um, it was it was interesting, but it wasn't necessarily interesting in a negative way because we saw it as we must be doing doing something right. We're making people uncomfortable, and to create change, people have to get uncomfortable, and it's threatening to some people. Um, but we 
having said that, we were always very respectful with our own messaging. We never shamed or blamed or, you know, um, pointed fingers as anybody. We just uh, focused on, you know, the the facts, the science, the sentience, um, and and so on. And uh, um, and you know, slowly over the years, um, I think people have come to understand this is a very legitimate and an important issue. And uh, I mean, there's nothing you can't really argue with with the facts on the ground that animals are experiencing X, Y, and Z, um, you know, cruelty and mutilations and suffering. So um, it's just a slow, a slow process. But, uh, but I think there are cracks, cracks forming in the system and, and things changing. Um, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Thanks, thanks to organizations like you and the wonderful work that, that you and uh, your dad, Brian, have been doing all these years. And, um, you know, Voices is, a, is an educational resource which leads the way into all kinds of non-preachy open discussions on important issues which directly do affect young people in their future, uh, not to mention the non-human species they are, of course, learning about. And, you know, I, I really love that very inclusive approach that you have, a very welcoming approach. And it's so wonderful to see a voice like this for the animals in schools. I remember coming home from school uh, in the UK one day, I was a fellow 80s, uh, 80s youngster in uh, 1986 and uh, clutching a leaflet from Juliet Galatly uh, from, from you know UK charity Viva. Uh, it was her very first scream campaign and I was telling my parents, you know, fervently I was now vegetarian. As you can imagine, it went down like a lead balloon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you, you know, you've mentioned the the challenges that you had in those early days um, getting the organisation off the ground. How is this kind of teaching received these days? You know, do you get much in the way of, of resistance from the teachers or uh, from parents? You know, in, in daring to teach their young people that there is actually another way to live and different things to eat and to question their years of conditioning. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, the education system in Australia is is not as centralized as one would imagine. Um, so our approach, I mean, there's not one gatekeeper or one decision maker saying if something is allowed or not allowed. Basically, teachers have the ability, as long as they're sticking to their curriculum and following the kind of fundamental <laughs> rules of um, going and finding, you know, resources and information and delivering, you know, their classes in whichever way that they, that they want to. So our approach was... Um, you know, if we if we look at the population as a whole and say, I don't know, let's make a guesstimate that 20% of people really care about animals and really believe this is an important issue, or even 10% being pessimistic, um, that would be reflected in the teacher community. So there's a lot, you know, thousands and thousands of teachers out there who are personally interested in, in animals and who um, want to be able to talk about these issues in the classroom. But as you mentioned before, there's really no resources except industry resources. And there's a lot of industry resources. Mm -hmm. um, so our goal initially was to um, enable and empower these teachers who are already on board with, in terms of values with having like professional, you know, accurate, you know, fact-checked, um, um, engaging materials that they can use in the classroom um, that then link to a new, you know, many, many different curriculum. So they're ticking off their curriculum requirements. They're making their work easier because we're supplying them with everything they need and they can go ahead and deliver, 
you know, classes on some of these really important issues. Um, so I think that was a that was a good strategy, and you know, our teacher database um, slowly built up, and we got good feedback from teachers, and we. Um, got a great um, platform called Education Perfect, which, uh, you know, thousands of schools use to host our materials there as well and promote our materials. Um, we did uh, make a decision early on not to address food as such, because that is a very highly political issue in schools. And I, I don't think... I. I don't think they generally um, do a lot of food as in like, because it's, a it's a, more of a personal decision. It's not really connected to the curriculum as far as I know. So, and also just because we didn't want to get that extra kickback about we're trying to make kids vegan, mm -hmm. uh, which makes parents very stressed out. Um, we focused really on... Um, on sentience and on critical thinking around issues. You know, for example, we did um, a module on the live export um, issue and looked at, you know, all different sides of, you know, the argument and the issue and the, you know, um, science and the ethics and, and so on. But we keep it really as a critical thinking and debate and discussion exercise. Um, because that's, I mean, the information speaks for itself. And if you are not coming to people, I think generally, if you don't come to people with this is how it is, this is what you need to think, this is the right way and the moral way, and you just pose questions, uh, it's it's a bit of a no-brainer <laughs> in terms of, I think, for most people. Because if you look at the ethics around the live export industry, it's it's tricky for people to argue that it's um, that it's sound uh so so al allowing the the students to think for themselves and um and look at all sides of the argument and come to their own conclusions was our strategy and i think it's a it's a good one that um that other organizations could use and is because this area is starting to grow now humane it's called humane education more broadly um we were using the term animal protection education, but it's really under the umbrella of humane education, which is um, which is a really growing international um, area for students. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. I, um, I really love the point of, you know, making sure that it ticks off those sort of curriculum sort of points because there's a lot of fantastic organizations out there who are putting out this information, but by you actually tailoring it to fit that curriculum. It's just, yeah, it's just, it's a fantastic idea. And I think it's so well thought out. It must have yeah. taken an incredible amount of work as well. Yeah, it was quite work intensive, much more than we had imagined. Uh, we had an excellent um, uh, educator on our team who came from, um, who was 11 years as a, as a teacher, an English teacher. And she, uh, you know, Coming from the point of view of a teacher, she knew what teachers wanted and needed. I mean, teachers are, are busy, they're time poor, you know, they're really swamped. So you just, you know, need to, I guess, respect that they don't have the time to go out and be creating some, you know, some like new, um, new lessons that um, don't connect to anything that they're supposed to do <laughs> or maybe even doing, you know, lunchtime groups or, you know, afternoon groups. Um, so coming from the, from the educator's point of view, I think was a, was a good angle. Um, and we, we 
would kind of tailor and deliver materials straight to our teacher database, which is just like these, you know, making their life easy was was the purpose. But assuming that this is an area that they wanted to teach already. I think if we can get teachers who are already interested in these issues or teaching it, then that'll have a trickle-down effect and, um, yeah, uh, it'll start becoming more normalised. Absolutely. Imagine yeah. how many teachers you will uh, enlighten just as much as the students, I'm sure. Yeah, and then that whole um, that ripple effect as well, and how many are students from the teachers and such and such and their friends and their families, and then we'll write an angry letter because you turned my, my, you know, <laughs> my kids <laughs> vegan. But um, and I, another thing as well I just want to pick up on as well is that it um, reminds me very much of the Socratic method that I know a lot of uh, street outreach activists will be aware of and that that part of providing the information and then with the debate system, getting them to question it themselves. And um, for myself recently, I've been getting into plenty of online arguments and using the very You're same method. from that, aren't you? Yeah, I'm still, <laughs> I'm still championing my victories over, over that. But, you know, it's, it's great to see that as well, even in an educational platform and just how powerful it can be just getting people to, to question that for themselves. I think, uh, you know, what we understand more and more, especially in the social media realm, is people don't, respond well to being shamed or told that they're horrible people um and everything they've thought until now is wrong like you know it it might be true but it's not going to convince anybody to change you have to engage them and and give them time also it's a process i mean everybody goes through you know often a really long process of you know you hear a little bit of information here you're like oh that makes me think a year later, three years later, 10 years later, and then you're at a point where you're like, okay, I think I can make some change now. I understand what's happening. But it's not necessarily an overnight situation. And it's probably not going to be one person who does the trick and convinces you that everything you've thought of until now has been wrong. Yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, yeah it, it is a process. And like for 99.9% of us, most of us weren't born vegan. And we all went through that process ourselves. Um, for anybody who knows my backstory, I was dead sworn against it. I, I told because Jackie went five days before I did. And I said, I love you. I will support you. But there's no way in hell am I ever going vegan. And then five days later, well, uh, who's muggins at me? Um, here we are. Here yeah, we are. Here we are. Now you're rendering your victim speeches for your Socratic debate. Yeah, so there's definitely a process to it. And um, I feel like, yeah, doing doing asking those sorts of questions, getting them to think for themselves is one way to help water that um that that seed is as people like mm. to refer to it you know and um pushes that forward but um another avenue of education that voiceless works tirelessly to advocate in and grow is teaching of animal law sadly animals in law are still all too often considered property valueless and worthless outside of their economic value when voiceless first started there was only was well, just one university teaching animal law Today, there are at least 14, and that number continues to grow. Awesome. <laughs> I feel we can draw comparisons here, though, with our counterparts in the health-focused plant-based movement, with the likes of Dr. Michael Clapper trying to get into med schools and educate doctors about nutrition before the pharmaceutical companies get in there and indoctrinate them into staying with the current systems where well, patients are customers, and they prolong suffering for industry profit at the end of the day. 
with animal agriculture representatives often in charge of legislation and that, that benefits their industry and also in charge of the government bodies that are supposed to be protecting uh, the animals from exploitation. Do you feel your work here in teaching future lawmakers is a similar sort of race to get them educated in the true value of animals before they're sold into a system that exploits them for profit? Yeah, I mean, I think um, that's that's a really good point. There's another parallel that I always think of with the environmental movement um, in that environmental law was something that nobody had ever heard of until I, I would say 15, 20 years ago maybe um, when it started to grow. And animal law is is a tricky area because it's so cross, uh, I guess, disciplinary um, in terms of law. And, you know, lawyers usually like focus on one particular area like property law or criminal law or, you know, a certain certain area and animal law cuts across all of those because animals are property. But then, you know, if if you're talking about activists who are going in and taking footage and then there's the ag-gag laws and that's, you know, going into criminal law or all different um, areas. So I think um, we recognize that it's um, it's kind of a complex and, and um, challenging area of law to to start building up. Um, and it's really important to get young lawyers across all these different issues. Uh, and so it's, it's the power of, of youth on the one hand. It's like when you, you know, engage um, people in university or at schools, you're, you're helping to form their future selves. And these young lawyers are going to be out in the workplace working at corporate law firms or working in government. And um, and they're now going to be equipped with this really comprehensive understanding of the failures of the law to protect animals, which is really what it is. So it's not really animal law. It's kind of like how the law needs to be reformed to actually protect animals, even in the most basic of capacities. Because at the moment, farmed animals get pretty much zero protection under the law. Um, they're exempt from all the animal cruelty, you know, legislations. Um, so, uh, so our strategy was really to, to I guess, like we we were trying to do with the movement to try and build up this, you know, growing population of animal lawyers um, who will then be out in in the world and. Um, you know, pushing back possibly, be it government or corporate or using their skills to be pushing forward uh, law reforms for animals. Um, and and it's been really like our most successful area of Voiceless's work. I mean, lawyers just, especially young lawyers, just love this area. You know, often people go into law full of kind of idealism and wanting to do something good, but they have a bit of a bad rep at the end. But, um, you know, they're often like really passionate people who want to, who are interested in social change and social justice, and uh, they love the area of animal law. And so it's just been, you know, it's just been exploding, really. Um, so universities are all taking it up and, uh, and law firms are springing up that are focusing on animal law or dedicating whole, you know, areas to a pro bono, you know, support for, for animal organizations. I mean, Voiceless, we have, at some point we had too many 
law firms offering to support us for free. <laughs> we had to turn <laughs> some down. So, um, so it's been really hardening to see this area. Uh, and, you know, lawyers, for good or for bad, are often kind of put on a bit of a test pedestal in our society. You know, they're seen as kind of these very educated and, you know, empowered people. And so back to my very early point of trying to mainstream the movement, once you get also like a, a army of lawyers involved in fighting for animals, um, it really disrupts this, this kind of um, view or this stereotype that animal rights or animal protection is for the hippies, extremists, radicals, you know, like bludgers, because <laughs> they're all, you know, they're in their corporate suits and ties and, you know, uh, looking very serious and very uh, articulate. And so I think it's done done one, a wonderful thing for the movement, having this growth in animal law. Oh, that's fantastic. It seems like it'd be such an exciting uh, side of it as well, because you're, it's not just a case of dictating these laws which have already been set in place. It's, you know, so much change is needed there, and you can see how these laws aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing once you have the animals in perspective. So it is it it gets me excited. Although I've never been excited about law really beforehand, <laughs> and I, I, it gets me excited thinking about you know this is an area where there's change that can be made. You know, and I don't know. I'm not one for like sticking to the rules too much, and like it just seems yeah, so much more going on there. And it I'm just, thinking the same. Yeah, yeah. I, can't, I can't argue my way out of a paper bag, but for the animals, <laughs> I would do that no matter what. <laughs> you know that that paper bag's got to change in that case. You know, not to plastic version. <laughs> something no. something better, but um, and also just yeah, as you're saying, it legitimizes uh, our radical rabble, as it were. You know. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. also protects protects us because you know one of the really frightening global phenomena that's been happening are these ag-gag laws mm -hmm. um, which have basically been criminalizing activists from going in and taking pictures inside farms um, which is basically the only way as we know um, that you can get any um, evidence of breaches of cruelty or cruelty so in the U.S. in particular but it's been um, starting in Australia and it's so so to prevent that from happening, we need we need our lawyers, our animal lawyers, to be protecting, you know, animals' rights and our rights to be able to access. On Ryan, he was tried as a uh, domestic terrorist in the U.S. for um, being part of liberation campaigns, and yeah, it's this year uh, with activists, we're going to be going into a lot more of these cases where it's just the when, when you go into his case, it just seems ridiculous ridiculous the fact that he could be tried for what he was doing which was just helping animals and um yeah it, it's a very sort of scary thing what they're sort of trying to build but i suppose like the lawyers now are our shield whilst uh, we have our other activists who might be the sword of the movement you know they're the shield who's blocking those blows so it's i, I i'm excited about law now i didn't think that was going to happen today but i'm, I'm getting excited but um it's so fantastic to learn about that. But in using long-term strategies like this in, in teaching, uh, we often won't see the effects um, of, of this education until later down the line. While shock tactics, fast action campaigns, direct actions, they're all common tactics of the movement, which show very quick results often. I'm interested to know why it is that um, Voiceless opt for the long-haul approach as compared to single-issue campaigns. Yeah, it was always our 
I guess my dad and I, you know, always quite philosophical and interested in the ethical underpinnings of the movement and what what we were really trying to achieve. And I think it it helped that we we're in a in a kind of a privileged place that we had mostly our own funding. So I think that sometimes organizations, um, you know, you want to keep your donors pleased and you want to show quick, um, small results, uh, which is just the nature of being in the nonprofit world and fundraising. Um, so I think we we had a little bit more scope to uh, to not be kind of showing those fast results, but just working like, yeah, on the building, on the capacity building, the um, relationships, you know, building coalitions and um, and questioning some of the deeper issues. And we shied away. We did several times get into more single-issue campaigns, but I never felt personally totally comfortable with it um, because even if those campaigns are won, the underlying issue is still exists. Um, I mean, I think, for example, of, you know, horse racing and those campaigns and, and voiceless supported, you know, um, projects to, to ban uh, horse, you know, whips for horses. Um, and that's quite a good example of, you know, the whips are really just the symbol, the, you know, the, yeah, the symbol of the problem. I mean, the problem is that we think it's ethically okay to be putting animals in, in a situation, you know, taking them out of their natural um, behaviors and their family groups and keeping them contained and restrained and making them race so we can have a drink and make some money. I mean, the whole concept of horse racing is quite, you know, mind-blowing when you really think of it. It's um, So that's an example of, yeah, of the work that we were we were trying to do more, um, looking at those underlying issues um, and, yeah, building up the community of people who are going to be addressing them. Welcome to the middle of the show. We just wanted to take a quick moment here to give thanks to all our supporters and donors that make this show possible. If you would like to support the work of Vegan FTA and our global activism projects, please visit www.veganfta.com forward slash donate. Let's get back to the podcast. There's been a lot of great growth in in the movement and obviously in veganism, but the actual situation on, on the ground for animals themselves in the factory farms or, you know, in the industries has not improved a huge amount, which has been quite a bit of spit, pill to swallow um, for me personally. But I also know for a lot of advocates, when you're looking back over, you know, 20 years or 25 years of work and, you know, the same, we're talking about the same things. And, uh, and I think it's because when you're doing the single issue campaigns and dealing with those more symptomatic um, expressions of the problem, you're dealing with the structures and the institutions that are already designed to work against animals and already, you know, that have a culture and a, and a system that is very difficult to change. So I think it's, you know, digging down into the, the underlying values, our culture, young people, you know, and, and bringing up a new generation that are seeing the world in a, in a different way and in a more equitable, uh, just way. So I hope that 
that uh, the youth of today, <laughs> we say her voices, you know, we're investing in the youth of today to be our future change makers. I think, I think young people really are one of the big solutions and a really important area to invest in for advocacy. Absolutely. Yeah, they're our best bet, aren't they, at the end of the day? And it's so great that you guys are recognizing this and, and just putting so, so much of, of your, you know, you have everything your, your years of dedication into it so uh, we, we love what you're doing and it's, it's so great you know I hope uh, many other people are inspired watching uh, and hearing all about your work and at Vegan FTA we know all too well how despite our best intentions and all the best laid plans in the world life has a habit of throwing you a huge curve <laughs> curveball now and again we also understand the feeling of despair and hopelessness that can really descend when these render us unable to participate in the kind of activism that we strive to achieve as a devoted mother of three which you are on top of everything else that you do you have spoken before now of the incredibly tough challenges that you faced raising your beautiful twin boys who were born with a rare genetic condition understandably this led you to take a step back from voices and and the movement in general for some time I still can't believe everything that you do. It's, it's really, truly is amazing. And I think of activists, we are naturally hard on ourselves. You know, we expect ourselves to be superhuman for the animals and everybody else. And I found it so valuable coming from someone like yourself who has achieved so much to hear that, you know, it's actually okay. Sometimes we actually do have to take time out or away from the movement, but we can and we will get back to it. Um, I, I know, you know, I remember hearing that, that you told yourself this very thing. Are you able to share a little with us about that time yeah sure it was yeah a really tough time um as you mentioned I had um had my daughter Jasmine and then I had twin boys a couple years later um and you know it slowly kind of un unfolded that they uh were had disabilities and they're actually they're uh they're teenagers today <laughs> Um, and they're uh, severely disabled, they're in wheelchairs, um, and they don't speak verbally, they speak through computers, and we, you know, they go to special needs school, and we have a whole raft of therapies and equipment, and it's a whole different world um, that I guess I was, you know, uh, plunged into the world of disability and it was, yeah, tough times. I ended up taking time off voiceless, which was really hard to do. Um, but I felt like I had no choice and, and ended up writing a, a memoir about my whole journey with my, with Dov and Lev. Um, they're 16 today and wonderful, beautiful kids. Um, and I've learned how to, you know, juggle life uh, better and return to my passion of, of animals um, I kind of came back into voiceless around, I don't know, eight, eight years ago or so. Um, but yeah, during that time it was, it was tough because I really thought that I would have to give up all my, my passion for advocacy and all my work. And I didn't know how I would go back to voiceless and I didn't know how I would find time to do anything. I thought I would be a full-time carer. And I even thought I should retrain as a speech therapist or as a physiotherapist. And I started looking at different university <laughs> degrees and, and so on. But it was a long, a long journey and a process. And um, thankfully, you know, slowly we got the support that we needed. Um, and I was able to dip my toe back into the world of advocacy and also writing, 
when I wrote my memoir, funnily enough, I realized how much I love to write, um, or I remembered how much I love to write, and that led me onto um, my Animal Allies series. So I kind of started the first um, book in that series, you know, just as I was finishing up my memoir because I just didn't want to stop writing. It was such a um, nourishing thing for me. Um, so it, funnily enough, even though at the time I, I was very you know, depressed and sad that I didn't think that I could come back to the animal protection world. Um, funnily enough, it, it ended up taking me in a, you know, bit of a different direction, using writing as a way to uh, be an advocate and, you know, coming back to voiceless in with probably quite a different perspective and, um, and you know, life works in funny ways and I you just never know, like you just have to go with the flow and not be too hard on yourself. And I wish I was a bit less hard on myself at the time um, because I felt so guilty and like I was really betraying and letting down the animals that I had promised to spend my life working to protect. But um, I think when you have a passion and it's really like fundamental to your identity and your you know, sense of yourself in the world, like you'll find a way to come back to it. It might not be in a way that you expect, but, and it might be in smaller ways, but there'll always be a way to come back to it. But we have to give ourselves time and, and, and just treat ourselves with the love and kindness that we want to treat others with, <laughs> which is sometimes hard. <laughs> because it's a trauma, it's a traumatic um, area we're all in, this animal, you know, rights advocacy activism you know you're dealing with like really intense very upsetting material and your response is like you just want to help and you just want to stop stop the animals from suffering and you feel like a big responsibility so um so navigating all of that and learning how to stay in it for the long haul and being sustainable and caring for yourself is so important I think you end up giving much more in the long term, if you take those moments to to care for yourself or take breaks if you need to go off and do something um, that's important otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love yeah. that. Uh, definitely. And, you know, I'm a great believer that, that everything happens for a reason, even if we don't know what on earth that reason is at the time. You know? yeah. <laughs> so true. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's fantastic that you're able to get that support and you know get back to this because it, it's we're so grateful to have you still doing what you're doing now and it, you bring something to this movement that is wonderful and I'm sure all of our viewers who've been watching this so far will already see that with all that other work you know we haven't really even talked about the books and such yet because um, they are also wonderful and Thank with you, you having so found you, oh, we really mean it, you know, and we're so glad that you found your calling during this time. And um, uh, I, I don't wish anybody to, to find their calling as well in such hard times either, but if they find the calling, that's fantastic. But, you know, you got to do what you can do, however that is, you know, and many of us, you know, we ourselves have our own difficulties in different ways. And in, in your case, you know, with the writing, um, it sounded like it was a very cathartic thing and something that really helped you through that time. And so um, initially with it being a healing tool, I, I, I see now how it's become such a powerful form of creative activism. And as a prolific author, it's fantastic that you get these books out there. Um, but whether it be written, uh, visual, audio-based, would you agree that 
we need to encourage and sort of foster among our fellow activists to engage in that form of cathartic creativity um, in their activities as well for mental health, but also just to empower our advocacy. Yeah, 100%. And I, I took me a long time to come to this um, understanding because I think at the beginning for many years I was, you know, I thought of the traditional activism or advocacy work as being the only way um, or the best way. Um, and I think, you know, I come to understand for myself, but I'm I'm sure it's, you know, for, for most other people that you need to also have that self-awareness of what you can bring to the table in a way that is like, um, that's not going to totally sap you of all energy and make you exhausted and, you know, be, be so draining that you're going to burn out because burnout is a major issue in this movement. Um, so I think we all have to be very mindful of keeping that nourishing aspect and even if it doesn't because I've always been about let's be strategic strategy strategic strategy <laughs> um and even if it doesn't seem like something strategic at the time um if you start writing a book for teenagers like I did I was like I didn't know if anyone's going to publish this I don't know if anybody will enjoy reading it or if they do it'll make a difference so it doesn't seem like the most strategic use of my time because it's a very long process writing a book but I was like you know whatever, I'm just, I'm enjoying it. I'm putting my heart and soul into it and I'm just going to do it anyway. Um, and who knows, sometimes the most unexpected things end up being the most strategic, but we wouldn't have known it before. So I encourage people to, um, to just follow your heart, do something that's going to enable you to keep in the game long-term um, if that's doing it through music or art or film or, you know, academic work or, you know, protesting or whatever floats your boat. Um, like part of that is just knowing yourself, knowing your character. You know, people are so different. Some people like get energized from being out in a big crowd and organizing and planning events. Like for me, that's the opposite. Like my energy comes from when I'm quiet and you know contemplating and you know putting my thoughts on paper or you know um or planning or strategizing <laughs> um so part of it is you know as we get older we learn we learn what uh what what fuels us and what sustains us and um and also making sure that we take uh time for ourselves that is non-animal related or maybe not even non-animal related. Like for me, that's just spending time with my animals. And that's not being strategic. I'm not helping any other animal if I'm hanging out with my dog, but it like nourishes me and then I can go out and continue my work. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what I love about creative activism. It, it's it's both therapeutic and empowering at the same time. You know, I started off writing as well in uh, for Vegan FTA, and I always figured, well, if I if something out of my vast ramble of things that I write encourages, you know, just flips a switch for somebody, encourages one person, if it resonates with one person and teaches them something that they didn't know before, encourages someone to make a change. Well, 
that's all been worthwhile, hasn't it? And, you know, I I want to read all of your books. I need to read them all now. <laughs> but let's talk about your most recent one first, uh, Vegan Living, which is a simple and comprehensive guide to a cruelty-free, healthy, plant-based lifestyle. Now, I wish I had a copy of this in front of me right now because everybody tells me it is the most beautiful book, but this is the guide. Look at that. There we go. Gorgeous. It's gorgeous. I've been hearing yeah, so much about how beautiful it is. It's so beautiful the way it's been. Wait, I'm not angling it properly. But there's some beautiful illustrations. Um, yeah, I, I ended up with a beautiful designer. So That is wonderful. I'm going to get a copy of it as soon as I can. I'm just going to order the whole lot, and we'll get to that before the end of this interview. But it is the guide. I'm, I'm hearing everybody say this is the guide for the veg curious in how to go vegan, which is you know, how hard is it to write a book like that? We we know, you know, where, where on earth do you start? But it, it answers all of the most common questions that people have about veganism. It dispels all of those health myths and the concerns and includes lots of personal hacks and tips and tricks as well. It's the kind of book that, you know, people like us really want to loan out to people because it, it saves vegans from constantly having to answer all the same questions again and again. And there are so many facets of veganism that aren't so commonly talked about in your book, even by vegans. Vegans. I'd love to know what were the standout things that you learned when you were researching and compiling vegan living. Um, you know, what what sort of things surprised you the, the most? I've, I've heard some some things about uh, the section in particular on leather that you wrote, but you know, for for you as the author, what surprised you the most? What are some big takeaways? Um, yeah, it was such a it was a really lovely process. Um, in particular, because I decided early on to um, interview like a whole lot of vegans um, because I thought, you know, I don't want to just have my voice and my opinion. I want to like have it as a community and as a like, you know, a color, more of a collaborative uh, feeling and have lots of quotes and lots of profiles and, you know, give a sense of like the scope of there's so many different kinds of people who are vegan. It's not like one particular profile. Um, so I interviewed, um, I think about 150 uh, vegans. I think one of the things that I found surprising from the interviews was how imperfect vegans are, because you, you can get a feeling on social media in particular that there's like the vegan police. And if you're not like 110% perfect in every single thing, if you don't check every ingredient of every ingredient and have it certified and verified and <laughs> checked, <laughs> then you're going to get like kicked out of the vegan club and, you know, uh, thrown to the wayside. So one of the things that I was pleasantly surprised about, because I've always been clear that I'm not a perfect vegan. Um, I mean, it's very difficult to be a perfect vegan in our world in that there are animal products hidden in pretty much every part of life and society. But even if you try your utmost best, it's it's not a perfect situation. But a lot of people shared stories about, you know, like if I'm in this situation, like I'm at dinner or like somewhere with my family or, you know, a friend has cooked some beautiful meal, but they've forgotten that there's some egg in the cake or in the pasta or, or that there's, I don't know, they put honey in something. They're like, out of respect for them, I'll just, you know, let it slide. Like, I feel like people were trying, they were expressing and telling the stories about how they're, we live in a non-vegan world, right? And there's vegophobia. There's a lot of negativity and, and 
discrimination even and stereotypes around vegans. And so as a vegan, you have to kind of like navigate and, and deal with, with society as a whole um, and even your friends and family. And I think people were sharing stories about how they were trying to navigate that. And that sometimes meant, and it's okay um, to not be 100%, you know, if you're 95%, that you're still doing a good job. You know, you're still a vegan. I feel like we should be 95% vegan. That should be our, you know, aspiration because I feel like, and there's been some, some writing on this and some people have crunched numbers on this. Like if we increase the vegan worldwide population from what it is today, which I don't think there's any, you know, final figure on that. Let's say it's 1% or 3% um, of 100% strict vegans. Um, and go to a 95% vegan, we could probably get much more easily to 10 or 20% of the population because you can do that. It's much more accessible. So that, that was one of the surprising things that I, I found um, with all these interviews is that people were a little bit softer on themselves than what it seems like on social media, and they're softer on each other, which is, which is nice. Um, the other thing... Uh, was, oh, something interesting I learned about cheese and about the addictive nature of cheese, which made so much sense because I don't know about you guys, but I can't count the number of times people have said to me like, oh, I could be vegan, but I love cheese. I just couldn't give up cheese. Well, there's like a biological, neurological reason for that. There's actually an addictive protein called casein in cheese that um, enables you know, infants, animals, or humans to want to keep breastfeeding. Um, so nature has designed, you know, this addictive protein to keep the babies coming back and and eating or drinking um, so they continue to grow. And so that, uh, that protein is what keeps us humans addicted to, you know, animal milk, um, which mm -hmm. I thought was, was a fascinating explanation. Uh, one more thing that I was surprised to see when I, because I don't know that much about nutrition, I'd never really delved into the vegan nutrition world, um, was how, you know, another thing that you get feedback all the time is, oh, what about protein? What about iron? I'm going to be low on iron or I'm not going to have enough protein. And protein and iron are really not issues in in vegan in the vegan population. Like medically, there's just like no data showing that we are lacking either protein or iron. Um, there is data around calcium, which I was surprised to find. So if we're going to be worried about anything, calcium should be what we <laughs> think about. But we can get calcium through plant, you know, plant-based foods without any problem. But uh, yeah, the whole the whole kind of retort of, of protein and iron is, is just a bit of an urban myth. Yeah, it's very much become the uh the, the common joke thrown around and we're even uh joking with our founder today she's got some uh vultures that have been uh, circling around the house lately <laughs> and i said oh it must be that protein deficiency you see they're I waiting for tell. you to drop yeah. you know and yeah it's um yeah i believe it's uh casomorphine i believe is the the full protein that yeah that's the one mm. that links to your brain yeah. as it meant to be i think heroin has the same effect it's that addictive substance and um i'd heard the reason well i'd, I'd heard of what it was but i didn't realize that was the reason behind it that whole mm. instinct to to feed like that which is really yeah, yeah it makes a lot of about, sense when you think about it 
Yeah, because if it tasted horrible, you know, and you're not going to come back. Well, um, you know, many uh, many species wouldn't thrive as they do. But um, I, I love how you brought up about you know the whole vegan police thing. And um, yeah, I'm sure I would have had my vegan card rev- revoked for a few times where I've bought things not realizing, then given them away, or you know, there's even been the case where I've eaten something and then realized, oh my god, this has got milk powder in it, despite they put milk powder in everything. Mm-hmm. Oh, they hide in so many horrible things. But, um, you know, these things happen. And, you know, I would yeah, much rather have a hundred, I'd even have, rather have a hundred plant based thing, uh, plant based people than, you know, one super perfect, ethical, shining light vegan, you know. And not saying, I'm not, still not saying I don't want more vegans, but yeah, yeah. more the merrier. Let's get more people on board. Let's get that. If we're aiming for that tipping point, mm. then we do need a lot more people on yeah. board. And uh, for our audience as well, as you know, we love this. Uh, get more activists too in that process because, you know, that, that's that, that's two for one <laughs> pretty much. So, um, yeah, get active and just get out and be part of this. Going back to uh, what we've been talking about throughout this interview, you know, the, with the um, inspiring and, and educating that younger generation, you've also written a trilogy of young adult fiction, which you referred to before as the Animal Allies series. The series, which I definitely want to read as well, has a vegan protagonist and covers animal protection issues. What was the inspiration for writing young adult fiction in this largely sort of unexplored genre? Yeah, I I was just drawn to to writing for for teenagers I think partly because as a teenager myself or when I was younger you know even as a kid um, there just wasn't much out there and there's still not a huge amount out there it's growing a little bit but um, you know I, I never read a story where the protagonist was even vegetarian or even there were vegetarian characters um, I mean, there were stories that had animals in it, but not about um, a person's ethical relationship with the animal. Um, and I, you know, I love, I love, always have loved books. I've been a bookworm since I was little. So, uh, so I wanted to focus on on young people, and I guess going back to the strategic side, like strategically, like growing that area of literature. So, um, so young people who are interested in animals or love animals you know, can see themselves reflected in characters in a book. And we know how important that is to see oneself reflected on TV and in films and having that diversity and that, you know, different types of people. Um, Because if you don't see any reflection of yourself, you don't feel like you're seen or that you're valid as much. (laughs) You feel weird. Um, So... So getting young people, and I, I really do believe in the power of, of young people. Um, I mean, I think young people, especially of this like young teenage age, so kind of 11 to like 15 or so, you know, they they often just have such um, idealism and passion and ability to kind of see outside the box or, um, you know, to reject social conditioning, you know, it's that rebellious stage. So you're like rejecting certain messages that you've been hearing your whole life or you're rejecting your parents' you know, um, worldview or, you know, the way that they think about certain issues and you're like out in the world finding your identity, looking for new ways, um, ways to express yourself, 
you know, a community of people who are like you, who um, you can connect with. So I wanted to reflect all of this in um, in my books. It's been, it's honestly been such a lovely surprise. I think because I'm on Instagram and waste probably way too much time on Instagram. Um, so some of my readers find me there and uh, send me DMs with, you know, lovely little messages about how they're enjoying my books, which, you know, makes is the world to me <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and um, the whole reason why I really wrote these in the first place because I really did go into it. And, and like I said before, I mean, writing doesn't seem like a very strategic way to use your time if you're an activist or advocate, but, um, you know, I went into it just, just for the journey and the process and, you know, from a very Zen point of view, it's just like, this is my expression. If it finds an audience, it finds an audience. And I really just need one person. If it makes a difference for one person, then, you know, I can't ask for more than that. And, and I feel like, you know, it, it has done that job and it's my, uh, Sky has actually done quite well commercially, um, so it's it's been it's been great, and I'd love to continue at some point. Uh, yeah, it was really fun, like a, the most creative um, project I've ever done, inventing characters and inventing plot, plot lines and dialogue, and it was good. Oh, that's fantastic! fantastic. See that, like um, that's the thing, like you with the people you might reach with this. It may be an introverted teenager who, you know, when they see activists out in the street, they may just make the beeline, you know, straight away from them, you know, not going to interact, not going to do that. But then if they happen to pick up this book and get into it, you know, it's tapping into somebody who you may not get with any of these other more conventional forms. And it's great that you can have that creative release through it and have fun in doing this. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, um, please, for anyone in our audience, if you have little passion projects, follow them, you know, follow them for the sake of yourself. And then you never know what with art, who it's going to affect. You can put something out there and you never know the result until uh, until they hit you up on Instagram uh, in your DMs exactly. and, and, and say what a wonderful time they had. But um, the protagonist, Sky, is a young teenager who relocates from the city to the country and is confronted by what she discovers. You've mentioned in previous interviews that you address the issues young vegans face, such as peer pressure and lifting the veil on terms such as free range and humane. How do you share the truth of what's hidden in animal cruelty, such as factory farms, and in particular, in Sky's case, uh, the truth of chickens who are raised for meat without scaring the young folk off, you know, uh, not terrifying them (laughs) between the pages, you know? Yeah. No, I was very mindful of that. I mean, I had been traumatized and terrified as myself when I was that age, you know, like I described reading the the animal liberation magazines, which weren't appropriate content for an 11 or 12 year old. So I, I was, yeah, very, um, very mindful that I didn't want to cause any trauma. Um, and I, but I didn't want to shy away from the truth either. So I was trying to juggle those two things and I didn't, you know, fiction isn't meant to be didactic. You're not like telling anybody what to think. You're creating a world and characters and people are going along for the, for the journey with those characters. So I didn't want to kind of go into like a preachy (laughs) mode of like, this is wrong and this is, um, so I, even for the, you know, the, the characters in, in the books who were 
you know, kind of like the anti-animal people. Um, I try to make them as human and as rounded and personable as possible because, of course, they are. You know, everybody is um, in real life. Everybody has their nuances and complexity, complexities and, you know, the world isn't divided into baddies and goodies. Um, so I was mindful of that. Um, and one of the techniques I used was the relationship that Sky, who's the main character, has with animals. So in the first book, and not to give any spoilers, but she has like a friendship with a with a chicken. Um, and uh, and that it comes from a genuine place and it's and she learns about, you know, chickens and you know, chirp her <laughs> her companion chicken. Um, and it, that allowed me to bring um bring things into it. She also kind of goes on this adventure where she stumbles on a farm and, and so on. So that's part of the kind of moving storyline. Um, but since everything's through her eyes, she has her own experiences. So it's not about the information or telling people what to think. I was just allowing people to see what she was seeing as a character and experiencing her love for Chirp, like as her, as a young young woman. I'm, th I'm trying to think of how else I avoided that. I mean, I, I, the second book um, is set in actually in Alaska and addresses kind of trophy hunting world. Um, and that was really fun to write because I kind of immersed myself in winter in Alaska and, um, and there's a moose in the book and, you know, different wildlife. And the third book is back in Australia and it's more around social media and, the kind of naming and shaming kind of culture that sometimes goes on. And it was almost like a reverse, like she encounters the whole vegan activist world and she has to kind of find herself within that and work out what she feels right and, and wrong and, and what, you know, where her boundaries are within the, within the vegan world. So I, I thought that was um, also an interesting angle so it's not only like the vegans are the you know the goodies and everyone else is the baddies it's just it's like people are complicated and even within in any environment in any network especially online um we have to find our our place to find our voice and um and be ourselves and be true to ourselves um so it was yeah it was fun and interesting and, and very challenging uh to navigate all these you know, tricky, <laughs> tricky issues. Definitely. Very rewarding that you've, you've ended up with these three beautiful books. And I don't know, I've been listening to, listening to you talking and I'm, my, my brain is turning thinking, well, I know this young lady that needs to read that book. And I know this one that needs to read this book. <laughs> and, uh, you know, hopefully there are a lot of parents uh, watching as well that will be uh, inspired to go and, and check out your website, which we will be sure to share and, uh, and uh, let you know where you can get these books from for thanks your own so young much. people in your lives. But thanks to successfully getting your Animal Ally series into schools, Yay! Ethical questions are now being discussed through Sky and Snow and the other characters in your books, which is so brilliant. How hard is it, though, to get this narrative into schools, especially in a time when, you know, we're being encouraged now again to provide free milk like in the good old days? Um, and advertising constantly pushing how young people, as you mentioned, need calcium for strong bones. How did you go about it? Um, right from the beginning, I was really keen to have like a curriculum aligned component to the book. 
So I spoke with my publisher for the first book, Sky, and they wanted to go ahead and create that like connect school connection. Um, and yeah, I was actually very surprised, to be honest. Um, I think, you know, there's schools are kind of like a complex, also like decentralized kind of situation much more than we think. And often it's like the groups of um, subject teachers that can be more influential than anything else. So like English teachers. So my books fit into English. Um, and so then, you know, and then English teachers are just looking at it as a work of fiction and its appropriateness for their age. And if it, you know, brings up interesting issues and it almost is more accessible in a way um, because it's just, it's a story at the end of the day. And, um, and so, uh, so yeah, it was lovely to see. There was one picture of um, from a school that we received where all the kids were holding up the book, and I was like, "Yay!" <laughs> but um, but you can, you know, and I really do encourage advocates to to think about education and schools as a really important area to be to be working in and and focusing on um, because there, yeah, there is not one gatekeeper. You can, if you can access teachers and teachers on Facebook groups and teachers are at conferences and teachers are parents at, you know, possibly your kid's school and so on, you can, you can have in ways, um, into, into schools. Um, and, and, you know, libraries, uh, you know, the decision of the librarian, what books to stock is their decision. I don't, there's no kind of like um, complex bureaucracy around that. It's, it is hard to actually get contacts and into schools. So that's the tricky thing. There's not like one database where you like email every school in Australia. <laughs> you have to kind of have your, um, your strategies for, for kind of accessing uh, teachers and, and so on. But um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's really, it's an important area and, uh, I'm looking, you know, it's really nice to see it growing slowly. Oh, I absolutely love that. And, um, genius stroke having that curriculum already in mind yeah, as well, before gonna, you even start. Like, I was going to say, folks, once again, pick up on this point, if you're doing anything educational curriculum in mind, because that, yeah, that's just such a fantastic strategy. I probably said fantastic about a hundred times now through this interview, um, because it's just wonderful. I love it. I love it. I, I get that into your, your stuff, folks, when you're making it. So in a previous interview, you've uh, described yourself as a goal-orientated person, which you inherited from your parents. What are your goals right now? Or ultimately, um, as we've already touched on, there's many issues affecting Australia, as there's also many issues affecting many other countries. Do you have any plans to take uh, Voiceless Global yeah, so my goals um, at the moment, I I try not to be too goal orientated, but I think it's just in my <laughs> DNA or something. So I signed up to do a PhD <laughs> last year. So I'm currently in my second year of doing a PhD um, through Sydney University, actually, through this really fascinating group of um, of academics and students called the Multi Species Justice uh, Group. Um, and they, you know, kind of this combination of animal rights, environmental rights, um, human rights. Um, so I've been in a state of like deep 
learning and realizing how little I knew about anything, uh, reading about philosophy and ethics and sociology and, and so on. So my goal is to, my original goal actually before I started the PhD was to write a book about what, what causes people to have an aha moment that changes the way they see and consider animals. Um, and when I started kind of researching into that, I realized this, this is such a big area. It's so complex and multidisciplinary and people are very complex. It's not like one singular thing. So, um, so I've delved into a PhD with the question um, being uh, what causes someone who has animal rights values, um, who um, is an animal person, so to speak, to have come to that moral framework or worldview and looking at all the influences that they've had throughout throughout their life, but also looking at their experiences with animals and how that might have influenced them. Um, and then I hope to turn that into a book um, and, you know, share some of the findings. So that's that's one of my, my goals at the moment. And then with Voiceless, we're kind of transitioning into more of a strategic philanthropy space. So we're looking really to invest now with, with change makers and really inspiring projects and ideas that are going to kind of be disruptive and, and deal with more of those core long-term issues that we talked about, about like how, how can we change this very toxic human-animal relationship and how can we move beyond this anthropocentric and, you know, arrogant human <laughs> um, view of, uh, of animals, the speciesism um, into, you know, into a, a, a different kind of thinking about animals as being different but equal and, and, uh, and so on. So, um, so those are the two big areas that I'm working on, and it's it's been an, it's been really um, exciting because I've been doing such interesting reading and also listening to uh, to lectures and conferences and podcasts of real thought leaders in this space. Um, so stay tuned. I hope to share my findings <laughs> as soon as possible. I'm very excited about both yeah. of those yeah. things. It's great. And, you know, I, I said it before, I don't know how you do it all, but we are so lucky. The movement is so lucky to have you. Mm -hmm. And uh, for That's anyone cool. who hasn't heard of Voices before, or even if you had, but just sort of not checked it out, Voices website alone is a massive wealth of information for people of all ages and whatever stage you're at at their pre-vegan or vegan journey. And we definitely encourage, you know, everyone to go and have a look because there's so much to learn even before all this other great stuff that you're about to do as well. Um, you know, there are comprehensive teacher resources on there um, from all kinds of issues from boi um, broiler chickens to fishes to live export. You've mentioned there's a great section on that. Uh, critical thinking and much, much more. There is a huge section on animal law, including, you know, a lot of things that we don't think about, let alone know about you know, what animal law actually is, how and where you can study animal law, policy reforms, how to write law reform submissions, um, and just generally get involved in being a voice for the animals in the law system, which it looks like Gareth now wants to do. Um, <laughs> I know where I'm heading after this. <laughs> it's, it really is. It's a, it's a fantastic, and, and it's just so chock full of resources. Um, what other kind of content and tools can our audience find at, at the website, which is voiceless.org.au? 
Yes. Yes. Thank you. Um, yeah, we do have like a huge library of resources. I encourage people to check out the Voiceless Animal Cruelty Index, which is all on there. And you can look at all, there's 50 country profiles um, looking at all different aspects of the way they treat and consider animals and then comparing and contrasting them. So that's a fun, a fun tool. <laughs> well, not fun, but interesting. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I think we've got some great blogs um, on all different kinds of subjects. And, you know, just the fact sheets, I think, are really important because sometimes, you know, I mean, every fact, fact sheet we've done has been so well researched and so referenced and, you know, every single word is, you know, based in, in, uh, in fact and <laughs> truthful <laughs> um, literature and evidence. Um, and sometimes when you're just kind of out there Googling um, information, you know, it's that that care isn't always taken. Um, so there's a, yeah, there's a lot of information online on Instagram and YouTube and so on. But, um, yeah, as we know, we have to arm ourselves with like really the, the most, um, expert information as possible. And so that's a good place to start. Um, even looking through our reference lists and going from there. So, uh, I encourage, encourage everybody to check it out. And thank you so very much. This has been so nice. I really appreciate all the complimentary words as well. <laughs> oh, it's been it's so welcome, so welcome. I can say it. It's been fantastic. Um, we, <laughs> we just we, we've loved this whole thing, and it's one of the things that we really cherish about doing this series as well is getting to learn from experts like yourself, learn so much more about the strategy, see how all of us, uh, ourselves, our audience, can be getting better with their strategy for activism so we can all be punching that bit harder or you know we we can be uh, stopping those blows with the uh, the law degrees and the animal law you know protecting the others doing this fight i didn't think i'd be getting excited about law <laughs> i am now i have to go to the website and see where i can study here in new zealand I don't you know, know where to get all that credible information as well for yeah. next time you argue with your Socratic method. Yeah, <laughs> I still don't know if they'll let, let a um, a rough rabble like me in, into the many of the law colleges, but we'll soon see. Like I don't we'll think they'll put on a soon. nice no, shirt. <laughs> <you'll be> fine. <laughs> I might get a few steps in before they kick me out for something, but you know that, that will be a good laugh. And yes, please for our audience watching this, please go check it out at voices.org.au. And also check out the rest of Ondine's amazing work, all of her books at ondinesherman.com. And just thank you so much for joining us today. I, I can't express it enough how much of a pleasure it has been to meet you and learn from you. Absolutely. Oh, thank you thank so you much. For all that you've done. And thank and you guys continue. for all your work that you do and your amazing advocacy and, and you know, creating the connections and collaborations. It's so important for everybody to be talking to each other and connected with each other. It's really going to help the movement and help the animals. So well done. Oh, thank you so much. Well, hopefully this all helps as well with your research. You know, hopefully we're all learning a bit more about each other's aha moments. You know, mm. it's not just me listening to Jackie's old playlist and he listen to aha. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a proper education here. And yeah, I hope everyone has enjoyed this as much as I have. Well, as much as I'm sure we both have. <laughs>
I don't Thanks, listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> that the aha thing comes from Oprah, actually. It's not the most academic of uh, references. <laughs> Transformative moments is probably better. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the episode. Check out the show notes for the relevant links and ways to get involved. A great place to get active is our Vegan FTA Take Action page, where you can make a difference in just a few moments. Once again, if you've enjoyed the show, please leave a rating on your podcast platform. We are Vegan FTA, vegan Vegan for for the animals. animals.